Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning. This is our Every Day is Earth Day segment and our guest today is Ross Pomeroy. He is the chief editor of Real Clear Science. He's also formerly from Mankato. He's a zoologist and a conservation biologist by training and he's nurtured his passion for journalism and writing his entire life and so he's been writing for Real Clear Science I believe since about 2012. Good morning Ross. Morning Karen, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So you are a native Mankatoan. Uh, your dad is Lee Pomeroy, who a lot of folks recognize, and he's been on the show before as well. And so what is your background and interest in writing? Because now you're doing science writing for Real Clear Science. So yeah, I'm uh, uh, pretty lucky to have gone to nurture passions for science and journalism. I actually started in journalism earlier, uh, Mankato West grad, Go Scarlets but I was the uh, editor of their, their school newspaper, uh, The West Side Story. I, I don't know if it's still called that. Hopefully it is, it's a great name. And uh, ended up going to, to school, University of Wisconsin. Uh, sorry about that, but I came it's back okay. to Minnesota, everybody. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I intended to go into journalism there, but ended up just falling in love with science and ended up getting the zoology and conservation biology degree. Uh, missed writing afterwards and uh, I just started kind of writing for myself and then eventually was pitching articles around to a bunch of websites and I was fortunate enough that actually real clear which, which is where I now work they loved my writing and offered me a job and you write on all things science I was looking at some of your topics and I mean it ranges the gamut from everything from diseases to you name it psychology to also conservation and and climate change and that sort of thing and that's why i wanted to have you on the show today was to talk about some of your work with the environmental stories that you've done through the years and since you've been doing it since 2012 i imagine you've covered almost every aspect of climate change and global warming and environmental issues a lot of things have changed back then and it's been kind of hard to keep up sometimes but it's been it's been a, been a journey so what were mainly the things you started covering way back when you started in 2012? Do you remember what kind of the hot topics were back then? I do. As a matter of fact, one of the first big articles I wrote, uh, which uh, is kind of a good timely thing to talk about because it's now the 10-year anniversary, was the Fukushima Daiichi uh, nuclear disaster, if you remember that. Okay. And back then, uh, what was kind of the, the word or the thoughts going on in science and, the, the I guess, politically as well? Yeah, well, this yeah, this fits into the current uh, topic of climate change and environmentalism pretty well, actually, because um, uh, nuclear energy is uh, zero carbon. It's clean, and it's uh, another big thing for for power. Is it's what's called base load, which means that you can turn these plants on, and unlike uh, wind or solar, they're just on all the time. So for the way our, the way our power works, the way electricity works is you know you have to have enough enough capacity from power plants. To, uh, to basically power everything. So when you turn on your, your AC or whatever, especially when it's been so hot recently, you need to have enough power being produced to, to, uh, to make sure that, that that's gonna run. Otherwise you'll get what's called a, a blackout or a brownout. And uh, so the, yeah, the nice thing about nuclear power is it's, it's zero carbon, which is a big thing. And we'll get, we can probably talk to that a bit, bit later. Um, and also it's just on all the time. But uh, unfortunately with Fukushima, that, that really did scare a lot of people away from nuclear power. 
And so we talk about it today. Not as much, though. I seem like with renewable energy, the most I hear about is the wind and the solar. Do you think the talk with nuclear energy is, is coming back? I, I think it actually is, because on, on Fukushima, that did have the results of, uh, initially at least, you had uh, Europe, mostly uh, France, Germany, Spain, Italy, basically shelve or start taking offline all the nuclear plants. And unfortunately, they had to replace a lot of those with coal or natural gas, at least initially. Uh, but uh, worldwide, uh, nuclear power has actually stayed pretty consistent and same level of production because China has been building so many plants. And uh, one thing I'm happy about, because I actually am a pretty big fan of nuclear energy because it is very safe actually, uh, despite the disasters that you hear about, it's actually considered the safest form of power generation ever ever made in terms of producing deaths. And obviously there's no uh, pollution or anything from it. But Minnesota actually gets it 26% of its power from nuclear energy, just from two plants, one in Red Wing and one in Monticello, I believe. It's interesting because we really don't hear anything about that. I mean, it's not something when I think of power, I think of the traditional coal, oil, that sort of thing. And and you just don't think of nuclear energy. You don't. And actually, you know, what's fascinating is that as of 2020, uh, nuclear is now it's the second largest uh, percent percent wise, uh, the second largest power uh, percent power we get in Minnesota. It just topped coal. Coal is now 25 percent. Nuclear is 26 percent and renewables are 29 percent. Do you So, think, I mean, that's good news for, for, for clean power in Minnesota. Do you think the reason is because we have heard of the disasters like the one you mentioned and also Chernobyl and those sorts of things? And then we say, well, what do we do with all that radioactive waste? You say there's no pollution. But I mean, you hear those things, at least that's, that's a good point through history. So is it truly clean then or are there still issues that we have to fight with? That's a, that's, that's a great point because the nuclear power does produce, at least uh, through, through fission, a decent amount of waste. But the surprising fact about that is if you took all of the nuclear waste that's been produced in the U.S., you know, dating back decades, it would all fit in one football field. So, you know, that's actually not that much. And there's actually been some plans to, to have a long-term storage center in, uh, in Nevada under what's called Yucca Mountain. So it's like a mountain out there, but that's been stalled for a long time. But actually, in, you know, in, in, my, in the science writing community, you'd be surprised. A lot of, a lot of science journalists, we're all pretty big fans of, of nuclear just because it is very, very, if you look at the numbers, it's very safe and uh, dependable. And, and there's actually a lot of really good research being done into it right now from uh, funded by people like Bill Gates and some other entities that are making uh, reactors that are even safer. Because if you consider the reactors we use in Minnesota are still decades old, but you know, because of all of the, the, the stigma, uh, we just haven't been innovating as much as we probably should be. You but mentioned the new stuff out there is looking really exciting. You mentioned Yucca Mountain, and I know that is a, that is a big concern for some people is not wanting to put the waste there because of the environment and that sort of thing. So I think that's one of the issues that maybe needs to be overcome before nuclear becomes more widely used. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, that, that's that's always been a politically tough one, and you know it's obviously it's I'm not in Nevada, so I can't understand what Nevadans probably think about that, which is where Yucca Mountain is. But yeah, it's a, it's a it's a fraught issue, that's for sure. What are some of the other issues you've seen through your years as a journalist in the science area in terms of energy and climate change and global warming? I mean, it seems like it can be really a, a trigger button for a lot, especially in elections. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's it's kind of unfortunate. Um, uh, one, one thing I think that's kind of good to see now is we can switch over from nuclear to the renewable discussion. It used to be 10 years ago that wind and solar really, they really weren't that cheap. I mean, 
they had to be subsidized, it's true, but now it, the latest data we have suggests that wind and solar are the cheapest form of energy, cheaper than natural gas in most circumstances and far cheaper than coal. So, I mean, this is really something we should all be on the same side of, I think, because who doesn't want cheaper power and who doesn't want power that's not going to pollute? It just seems to be a no-brainer these days. And especially in southern Minnesota, because there's Buffalo Ridge is is located, which is a it's the Buffalo Ridge is an area of really high and consistent wind. Um, uh, I think parts of it go through the first district, and obviously there's lots of open land, and people can put up wind farmers can put up wind turbines on their fields and make money from that. There's plenty of area for solar. Uh, the opportunities for the Mankato area and the rest of southern Minnesota are really ripe with this this new. Uh, revolution in uh, wind and solar technology and of course there is be getting more and more of that down here and, the, and then of course the other argument i hear with that is what do you do with the solar panels when they're done what do you do with those big wind turbines when they're no longer able to be used because you can't really recycle them and that seems like that's another sticking issue with a lot of folks yeah so the nice thing about that is i'm a, i'm a very much a free marketer and uh when you when you have all these solar panels and all these wind turbines that might need to be retired, there's just going to be a market for that. And there's already a bunch of markets springing up in Europe now that a lot of solar panels are reaching their end of lifespan. There's going to be so much room for entrepreneurship, and and it's going to be exciting to see what industries crop up to recycle these panels. Because I I guarantee you, I mean, one thing I've seen as a science journalist is when there's this is this is not this is not really inconceivably hard to overcome technical issues some some chemist or some technologist is going to come up with a way to recycle this stuff and get all those rare earth, uh, rare elements out of there and and make some money on it so it's going to be exciting i think it's i think it's just a silly argument it's just it's like saying oh you know like if you're a person like you know 50 years ago like oh we're never going to innovate with computers and stuff how are we going to handle this it's it's just going to figure it's going to get figured out it's going to be fun to see well so as a as a science science journalist you obviously have seen a lot of those things which have been overcome what are some of the other major developments even in the time you've been a journalist that you've seen that you feel are going to be just more and more uh, in use in the future whether it's electric cars or or whatever Oh yeah, we can talk about electric cars right now. They're just, uh, it's, it just seems to be the, again, 10 years ago, if we were talking about it, it they really, most of them were pretty boring. The, the ones that were out there, they were expensive. They didn't next, I mean, unless you're buying the Tesla Roadster, they didn't drive very fast. They looked terrible. They just, they just weren't fun. But these days, like, oh, it's pretty incredible. You've got the, you know, the Mustang has their mock or the Ford has their Mustang Mach-E out, which Car and Driver just named one of their best cars of the year. Um, uh, you know, they're not marketing these electric cars to uh, to just, you know, people who want to, like, be environmentally friendly. They're marketing the cars, I think, the way they should be to take advantage of the technology because electric motors, they're incredibly efficient. So, it's like if you ever driven an electric car, they're they're fun to drive. They can go. I mean, they're gonna the new Hummer that's gonna be coming out that's electric is gonna be able to go zero to sixty in under four seconds. That's almost that sounds almost too dangerous for me, but that's gonna that would be fun to drive. I have to chuckle because I always see your dad driving around in his Prius hybrid that he's had for years and years, and he always lets me know how many miles per gallon he's getting on that thing. And and apparently they have come away since he's had his since, I can't remember what year he said, but he's had his for a while, and, and things have really developed even more since then. Yeah, um, uh, it's 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 going to be fun to see what these these cars uh, turn into. But I will say, yeah, no, they're, 
they're fun to drive. And if you, I mean, like a lot, I think a lot of people in Southern Minnesota might enjoy taking a look at uh, Ford's uh, F-150 electric uh, truck that's going to be coming out next year. I mean, it's, gonna, it's got ton, tons, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm just being evangelizing. The, I, I love cars. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, the tons of horsepower, you can plug in your stuff. I mean, it's, they're, they're, they're very cool. And they're, they're, the prices are coming down, which is even more important, too. Well, one thing I know our legislature has been very reluctant, not wanting to to pass the requirement of uh, dealerships having so many electric cars on the lot because they say there's just not the market there. Is that the case or are they just dragging their feet for, for no apparent reason? Yeah, I read into that. I mean, that's a that's a tough issue because I'm, I'm really not familiar with how those 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 deals work out. Um, uh, I would say, you know, you probably want to let the dealers decide what they're going to market because they probably know their customers best. But that's just kind of like my my thoughts is sort of like a more free marketer and, you know, let the, the market decide. But I mean, uh, cars are kind of an issue in general right now because obviously they got this with a semiconductor shortage. It's hard to get a lot any cars on a lot right now for a lot of dealerships. Well, I always wonder, too, because electric cars in the past have had kind of bad images because we're in the cold north and, you know, it's a lot of times batteries go dead and you think, well, the battery's going to run down sooner and you won't have a place to hook up, et cetera. And I think that's changing. So maybe that will change the demand once people get more aware of the issue. Yeah, no, in the past, electric, I mean, the problem with electric cars is their range was so puny, but I mean, we're talking 80 miles of range. So, I mean, if you take, and typically, typically in winter, that range will be cut down uh, by about 20%. So, you know, you might go from 80, if you had like a 80 mile car, it would go down to about, you know, 64, something or 60. But, you know, one thing to keep in mind too, is that your, your, your fuel efficiency tanks, also for combustion engines. So I've always never really bought into that argument because the fuel efficiency for a typical combustion engine will also fall by about 15% in winter. It's just obviously you don't have the range anxiety because you can you can fill up whenever you want. But you know, these new electric cars, they'll have between 200 and 300 miles of range. And so uh, just for, for, for winter, for winter, they should be just fine. And, uh, and a nice thing about uh, the lithium batteries that are in these cars now is they're, they're they're pretty they're really night and day advances over 10 years ago and winter is actually a good for a long-term health of a lithium-ion battery which you don't want is it to be really too hot because then the the, the atoms in there are bouncing around hitting each other degrading but the lithium batteries actually love the cold for for a long-term health of the battery well we certainly can talk about hot weather lately and it's been better recently but we've had our share of that this summer for sure so one of the things you wrote this caught my attention i know you write on all sorts of science topics, Ross, was corn ethanol seems to be a failure, but we're probably stuck with it. Talk about that because, you know, this is corn country, obviously. So lots of farmers producing corn for ethanol, et cetera. And when I saw that, I thought, huh, I wonder what he has to maybe chat about that a little bit. Yeah. So the the sad fact is that for a long time, you know, uh, ethanol has been subsidized and it's been subsidized in my, and at least according to the data recently, just unnecessarily, it's, it's, it's being forced to be put into gasoline. Uh, I think it's up to 10% in, in most pumps. And ethanol just simply isn't as good a, a fuel as, a, as typical gasoline. It's not as efficient for your engine. So you're getting worse mileage out of your car. And it could be, you know, it's probably not doing much damage to your engine if it's that low of a, of a percent. But it is, you know, your, your engine prefers, your car engine is going to prefer gasoline because it's got that, that uh, more, more pure, pure energy from there. Uh, but, uh, 
I think that some of the, and also there was some issues with ethanol and the way it was produced and that it just took a lot more inputs and actually was putting out, you know, the, the idea was if you, if you have these biofuels, this ethanol, it's actually going to be better than, you know, getting the, the oil out of the ground and much less environmentally uh, damaging, but at least uh, for, mo for most part of the ethanol's history, it's actually been a much more intensive process. However, I did see some data recently, which came out after I wrote that article, which suggested maybe that's changing. So maybe the new the, the new uh, chemistry that people who make these biofuels is using is getting more efficient. So that could be a good sign. So things may be changing. If, if they do, I would love to rewrite that article and, you know, change, change that. But uh, there's also a lot of new biofuels coming on the uh, the market here. I think there's switchgrass and other stuff. So we'll, we'll see if, if, if uh, ethanol from corn will be as big a market in you know, the next five to 10 years as it, you know, obviously has been for a long time. Well, I always wondered if I could put it in my car. I mean, I've got just a Honda CRV, and I always see this ethanol. I'm like, well, who can use it in their cars? Because I don't honestly don't even know if I could or not. So I just use the regular. Yeah. Well, you if it depends if you're talking about the E85 or the yeah, E15. The, when I see E85 and then I say E15 and it's cheaper, and I think, well, yeah. should I use this? And I think, well, I didn't say that, so I better not. So do you know yeah. any of the science behind that? Why you should or shouldn't? Yeah, so I mean, if, if you have a flex fuel vehicle, and it might, it'll, it'll, you know, you have to look at consult your owner's manual. Mm -hmm. um, most cars actually, typically these days, I think if they're made past 2010, can handle E15. I don't like putting it in my car because it's just not as, you know, from what I've what I understand from reading the science, it's just not as good for your engine. Oh, it is not as efficient. So maybe you save 10 cents up front your car is going to get worse fuel mileage so it's all going to even out so if that evens out like that then i'd rather just put in you know the, the pure gasoline the good stuff well is the argument that it will burn cleaner or doesn't that necessarily even happen you know i don't know about burn cleaner but i i understand that the way i understand it it does just it's better for your engine you know there's going to be i'm trying to picture the exact uh, the exact chemical stuff going on there but uh, it, it just it just burns burns better you know the you know the car is basically essentially controlled explosions so i would just say like the you know the the engine's just uh, just running much more smooth, smoothly with the, the the gasoline in there instead of the ethanol okay yeah just wondered what your opinion on that was because i don't necessarily understand yeah. it myself as a as a science journalist ross what has been your most interesting story that you've done related to climate change and and how has that changed through the years have we been seeing more climate change have we been seeing more climate change deniers have you noticed any change in the coverage by other media and including yourself yeah i think just yeah zooming out uh 10 years ago you couldn't talk about uh, you couldn't talk about carbon taxes you couldn't talk about uh cap and trade uh which uh, for People who don't understand, uh, don't know what those are. It's you know when you put a price on carbon and then allow allow businesses to put a cap on it and then allow businesses to trade those carbon credits back and forth. And so people who you can have businesses that that jump up who are you know planting trees or doing some other activity that lowers carbon and then they can trade those credits to bigger polluters so that would allow them to offset their emissions and that's actually you know that was that was political poison 10 years ago but just as recently as a few months ago you had the biggest the biggest oil trade organization come out in favor of a carbon tax and cap and trade system so it, really there's the 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 politics of it are changing i think people are just really noticing that as scientists have been saying for a long time, the climate is changing. We are we are doing it, and something needs to be done. I'm sure you still hear people say that that the climate change is all a hoax as well. I mean, as as a writer about it, 
do you ever get some pushback from people saying, well, you don't know what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I reply to them, this isn't my opinion. This is just simply what's happening. This is what the scientists are saying. Um, uh, and I think, that, you know, there's some people that do have some some reasonable pushback, which is, you know, some of these these climate models, they aren't perfect. They're obviously, you know, you're trying to predict the future. That's very hard to do. Earth's climate system is very complex, yes. But if you look at the balance of evidence, they're all pointing the one way, and, and the evidence is bearing it out. Uh, look, in, uh, we're talking about, again, between 10 years ago, 2011, between 2011 and 2010, I think uh, seven of the hottest 10 years, seven of the last 10 years have set records as, you know, the hottest on record. So we're doing something, something's happening. And uh, my personal opinion is that we should, we should pay the money and do whatever needs to be due to, 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 to safeguard our earth for, for, you know, my, I don't have kids yet for my children and for their children. I think that's responsible. But uh, other people might have different opinions on that. Uh, what other thoughts do you have related to the types of science articles that you're writing these days? Are more and more of them related to climate, or are you finding just the broad gamut? I think it's it's really about the same. I really, I mean, it's a it's a it's a widely covered story, and sometimes I don't cover them as much just because they're just kind of everywhere all the time. It's almost like background noise. I'll say this one of the most recent stories I saw. Uh, did suggest that there, you know, everybody heard about the the heat wave that went on in the Pacific Northwest, which really truly was unprecedented. Um, uh, it didn't just didn't just break the record, which, you know, we you can't just link one weather event to climate change. That's really hard to do. But when the when the record gets shattered by something like 20 degrees, it's so such so far out of the the normal bounds of what we've seen. You, Got to make you think twice. Some something might be happening. Something, as science suggested, is happening. I noticed you've also written for, in addition to Real Clear Science, your work's also been published in the Science Now and Scientific American. For people who don't know what it's like to be a science writer, how do you come up with your ideas? Are scientists sending you their studies? I'm just curious how you are able to come up with new things, or do you just hear trends, or what is it like in the life of a science writer? Huh. Oh, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that one. That's uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, so sometimes when I come up ide with ideas, it's just I'm just like you know, just something hits you, you know, and you just I write it down. I think, or I'm just wondering about some how some works or whatever. Uh, a lot of time, I, I also I, I read pretty widely other other you know science science books. Luckily, as a science journalist, one of the coolest perks is people just want to send you like books to review. So I pretty much take any of those I can, and I like reading them. And then you get. I get a lot of my ideas about maybe there'll be something in a book that's not an idea that's not fully flushed out and I think oh you know that could be a good article like maybe I'll do some more research into that and then also I get uh, what's called what's called press access to, uh, to, to to journals which is where a lot of new science studies get published so I'll I'll get those a few days in advance and be able to publish those uh, on a set and a date when an embargo ends so uh, yeah no I mean that's that's generally how I get all my ideas and some people argue that, for example, with all the COVID coverage and stuff, they'll say, well, some of these studies really aren't fully vetted out, et cetera. So as a science journalist, how do you know what studies are, what we should we say, the most accurate, the most current, and that you know that you can trust? Because there, there are a lot of studies. And we I can think back to the small study with autism where they said that vaccines cause autism. This was way, way back, and it was a study of like 12 
people, 12 individuals. And so that stuck. And still today, people are believing that. And it's been disproven years and years later that that's not the case. So as a science journalist, how do you vet out to know what is real so we aren't misleading the public? Uh, yes, there's a lot of ways you can do that. One, I mean, you have to, if there's if there's a big claim, you reference the autism study um, from way back in the day. That was a huge claim. You got to think if that if 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 there's going to be some that that that's that's that shocking that world changing, you got to have a little bit of skepticism at first. So uh, uh, you know, when I see a study that's like that, I'm going to think twice before covering it. I'm probably going to wait to see. If there's a pushback to that to that study, if from from the others in the science community, which, and, and, and as you referenced that autism study, invariably there was, and the the the, the doctor in question, I'm uh, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, I believe, he's lost his and losing his medical license. That study was later was later what's called retracted from the journal it was published in. So really, no, the, the first the first key is if you see a study that sounds you know it's like a shocking discovery, you, you probably want to just wait a second and then think and think you know think twice and make sure that the evidence uh, that they'd be presenting for for that result or that finding really is as strong as it needs to be well i'm going to to go back to the uh, now the covid talking about covid there are still people who believe that the studies can't be accurate because they were done so fast and how can covid be safe etc as a science writer what are your thoughts on that are you talking about in terms of the vaccines i assume yeah the vaccines yes uh, yeah, no, I mean, the, the studies were were done, at least compared to other vaccine studies, the big answer there is they were done fast because we're in the middle of a pandemic. But there's uh, millions of people they've used it on, too, so shouldn't that make it more valid, do you think? Or Exactly, that's what I was getting to. The reason why it was done in the middle of a pandemic, meaning that there's more people getting that disease. So the way a vaccine study is going to work is you're going to give some people the real vaccine, some people placebo, and then you, they send them out into real life and then wait to see who develops the disease. Well, in the middle of a pandemic, that disease is going around you know, like wildfire. So you're just going to get that result much faster because you're going to be able to uh, look at the statistics you know, after only a few months in this case and see so many more people contracted COVID-19 who were on the placebo group, meaning they just got a, an ineffectual like a vaccine um, uh, versus the real vaccine. So the re- yeah, the reason why it was done so fast is because that, that disease is going around. And, and when you usually, when in the past when they'll do vaccines, again, it'll just be, you know, there won't be, there won't be a pandemic on, a, a disease won't be raging. So it's just going to be take longer to collect that data. The reason I bring that up, Ross, is so if somebody's reading a scientific journal article or an article that you write, which is with real clear science, which is written more for the layperson, how as a an individual who isn't a scientist, how can I know if I can trust that? What would you tell people? Because you need to be a discerning reader, I believe, or viewer, whatever the case may be. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a that's a good question. Um, uh, I think it's kind of hard for me to to put myself into those shoes because I have such a different mindset but gosh you know because uh, you know one one thing you learn from 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 science communication is it's easier to trust you know like you know your friends and family and information coming through them so i mean i really try and make my work at least for myself r- relatable and and genuine and you know don't want to talk down to people and and i also try to, to stay out of politics myself so i don't uh I think a lot of problem with journalists these days is they, some some do tend to get on Twitter a little too much and be a little political or advocate for things more than I would like. 
So at least in my articles, I, I try to, to, to not make myself a part of the story, to keep my views out of it, and really just to, to stick to, to the facts and the evidence. So, I mean, and then, but yeah, no, it's, it's it, the original question was, you know, how, how can they, you know, trust a certain source over the other? I mean, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a tough question. That's a tough question. I think you gotta consider the source a lot of times, and like you said, is it are they being political or not? And like you said, you try to keep yourself yeah. out of it, which is good. How can people find your articles at Real Clear Science if they want to read some of your writings? Where would you go to find them? Well, you can go to the website itself, uh, www.realclearscience.com. I usually write in the blog section, but the, the my articles come up. They'll be in the little you'll see a little main column of, of headlines and then my articles will appear in there when I do uh, write ones, typically two to three a week right now. But then the, the, science, the website itself is full of other articles from, from other sources and other web, websites. So you'll get a good, good smattering of the latest science news on realclearscience.com every day. Well, I want to thank you, Ross. We are out of time, but we've been chatting with Ross Pomeroy, the chief editor of Real Clear Science, who is a Mankato native and now working for the this national... It's national or international? Oh, it's. Uh, I mean, we're based out of Washington D.C., but obviously the the website goes international. Anybody can read it, whoever wants to. So we got a lot of readers in the U.K. and you know Europe, all over the place. Any final words for us, Ross? No, this is a lot of fun. Let's uh, find another topic and do yeah. it again sometime. Well, <laughs> let's do that. And I know we got a little off topic, but I just thought as a science writer, it'd be neat to hear your process and so people know kind of where you're coming from. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, Karen. Have a, have a good weekend. Thank you, Ross. Bye-bye. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner, member NCUA, more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. RG.